So I trust you've all found 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. I'll just read 11 and 12 actually today. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. Well, welcome back to our book of Timothy here and in continuation for where we left off last week in a sermon series I titled Serving Christ with Excellence. Now last week I promised that we would be doing a two-part sermon series. Uh, after studying this week I realized that I had to turn two parts into three because the content of verse 11 and 12 was so powerful and so important that I couldn't leave uh, these things unattended. So those of you who are accustomed to Genesis House uh, know that that's not unusual that we can uh, you know uh, take something that's originally intended to be short and sweet and make it uh, longer and more advanced. So again, uh, but I wanted to um, share with you just the, the teaching I had learned from verse 11 and 12 because of the nature of how important it was. So today's sermon is Serving Christ with Excellence, part two, and uh, there'll be a part three to come. So let's waste no time and dive right in. Read verse 11 with me. He says, prescribe and teach these things. The things, of course, uh, which Paul was referring to were the qualities that we looked at in last week's sermon in verses 6 through 10. And these are qualities that Paul wanted Timothy to possess in order to effectively lead the Ephesian church. And by extension, of course, these are qualities that were to be that he wanted us to possess as well in being a in being a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now remember the three lessons we had. The first was a willingness to warn and correct doctrinal error that opposed the truth of the gospel. Second was to reject any influence of teaching that did not lead to a godly lifestyle. And third, we were to work hard in pursuing this life of godliness, knowing that our hope was ultimately in Jesus Christ. So those were the three lessons that we were to take away. Now this week, we're going to look at one additional trait, one additional trait. And before we look at it, I just want to reiterate something I mentioned last week. Um, this, this sermon series is, a, is a, um, somewhat tricky to apply to us in that uh, it's ultimately written to Timothy. So these are personal words to him. So uh, there's definitely a message to him alone. If we were to go by extension of Timothy's position as a pastor elder, then by nature the sermon would be primarily, primarily written to someone like myself who's in the spiritual leadership of a church. But as I mentioned last week, I don't like to just preach in that category because then it doesn't apply to all of you in the same way. And I feel like there's no point in you listening if it's just about a sermon to Timothy or myself. Um, so I tried last week to preach in a way that included all of us. And that's my intention today as well. And again, there'll be some things that will be applicable to those of us in ministry, but there'll be other things that will be applicable to the whole church. And so I will, through the Spirit's guidance, try to make that clear. So the, first, the fourth quality in being a good servant of Jesus Christ is really this. A, a good servant, a faithful servant, 
seeks to be a model of godly character within the church family. So seeks to be a model of godly character within the church family. That's the fourth quality we need to do. And we'll pick this up in verse 12. He says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now before we get into the character traits that Paul was calling Timothy's attention to, we first need to address the reason for why Paul felt it was necessary to mention to the, those to him in the first place. Notice before Paul's list of qualities that Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now clearly by the fact that Paul had to tell Timothy not to let anyone look down upon his age meant that there were people within the church in Ephesus that were in fact doing so. And even though the commentators all that I read all agree that Timothy was probably somewhere in his mid-30s by this point, which to us is not young in our standards in our culture, this was the case within the Ephesian culture. And clearly he was considered to be young, too young, to be in a position of authority and responsibility that he had been given by Paul. So it didn't matter to the church there at Ephesus that Paul had trusted him with the task to be leading them, or that God had especially given him the gifts and graces to do the ministry. His age, by the Ephesian cultural standards, was a hindrance. A hindrance and made him, uh, resulted in him not gaining the respect or the trustworthiness that he actually deserved. Now, in my own way, I can relate to Timothy uh, when I first moved to Okotoks. When I came here a number of years ago, uh, when I started my business as a personal trainer and doing massage therapy, um, I was around 26 years old at the time. And I remember that in comparison to my contemporaries who were in the same fields as me, I was much younger than everyone else in Okotoks. And when clients would first come to my door uh, that never knew me personally, that heard through a newspaper ad or through word of mouth that I was in town, um, they could, I, I could tell that at times I struck them by how young I was because I was 26 years old and offering these services and, and running my own business. And uh, I know that they had an issue with trusting me initially due to my age because of the conversations we'd have surrounding my education and my experience. Usually in the first treatment or the first uh, session, a lot of people would drill me on where did you go to school and when did you graduate and what experience do you have? And I knew deep inside it was because of my youth compared to my contemporaries. And this continued for a while. Uh, I'd say the first three, four years anyway, I would still get those conversations happening. But eventually it all stopped. Eventually as I got older and I started to gain a reputation within the community, for being trustworthy, no one cared, and by the end of my career, when everyone, anyone would come to me for services, no one ever asked me where I went to school, what my experience was, and so on. So I, I totally can relate to Timothy uh, in terms of what that feels like, and some of you can relate as well based on your own experiences. So this was a situation that Timothy faced in Ephesus. He, he was young to be in the position according to his cultural standards of being in the leadership of the church. And so Paul had an antidote. He had an antidote to this problem. He was to offset the disadvantage of his youth by living out an exemplary Christian life. He was to live and conduct himself amongst the people that left nothing in question. 
and there are five main areas. There was his speech, his conduct, his love, his faith, and his purity. And in these areas, he was to show his, himself as an example of those who believe. Now, I want to just say this quickly, because in our culture, again, to be in your mid-30s, I don't consider people would think that that's necessarily too young. I, if I were to ask, who are the youth? Who are the young people that people could look down upon in our society that could hold positions of responsibility and hold positions of, of authority? It can be people who are in their late teens and early 20s. Young adults or people who are in their youth that could be looked down upon, I would suggest in our culture, are those especially in their 20s and late teens. So I think this message today, of course it relates to all of us, especially to those of us in pastoral ministry, but especially to those, again, who are what I would call youth. People who would potentially, could, who could be looked down upon um, just because of their age within our cultural context. Now, here's why this matters, church. Remember the context of this. This is actually within the church community. He says, show yourself as an example of those who believe. So, he's in the church community. This is where he's getting the bad reputation, or being distrusted, I should say. And so, this is within the church context. Now, why this is important is, um, I was speaking to a fellow last week. And this fellow's name is Bryce, and some of you have met him, but he uh, basically replaced me when I left Pine Ridge under Dan's mentorship to church plant. Bryce is a young man. Uh, he's in his 20s, so he's in, the, in this category of people in our culture, and he is now going to be church planting out of Pine Ridge uh, in about a year and a half or so. So he's now set to be a church planner, and Dan has given him lots of responsibilities within the church there. Now what's interesting is he shared a story with me about a ministry he's overseeing with young adults, and young adults is 18 and over. So if you're a young adult in Pine Ridge and you belong to the ministry Bryce is heading up, you would be 18 and over up to the age of 29. That's how they do this. Now what was really interesting was Bryce shared this story at the young adults uh, meeting a few weeks ago, one of the, the young men asked him this question. He says, when do we start becoming adults and not be called young adults anymore? One of the people in Pine Ridge is going to stop calling us young adults and when do we become adults? And Bryce, who's in his 20s, said this. He says, when you start acting like one. <laughs> when you start acting like one. And the young men who asked the question acted shocked and said, what do you mean? What do you mean? And Bryce informed them from his own experience as a man in his 20s and from other pastors and church leaders he'd been a part of outside of Pine Ridge in the past. He had made the comment that most people in the churches, the, people, the group of people that drove them the most crazy and were the hardest to love, in the whole demographic of the church were the young adults. People in their eight, around 18 to 20, 29, somewhere in that, in that age group. And so they asked Bryce, why is that? Why are we so hard to love? And he said, well, your age group has given yourselves a reputation. You're known as not being dependable. You're known as being non-committal. And even when you do commit, you hardly show up on time. And when you do contribute, you never initiate. 
Yes, you're willing to serve, but it requires you always to be asked and then you serve. And when I asked Bryce, well, how did they react to you? He said they were shocked. He says they were shocked. They had no idea that the people within the church uh, saw them in that way. And I said, well, what happened after that? And he says, for, for many of them, it was a wake-up call. It was a wake-up call. And he saw uh, in one individual in particular an effort to be a contributor and to be dependable in all areas of his life. You see, that's the issue for the, the young adults, I think, in our culture today. And this is what Bryce was, was uh, warning these guys against. And this is what Paul is actually saying to Timothy. If you want to win the church family and you want to prove that you're trustworthy, you live your life in such a way that your conduct speaks for itself. I love this quote from John MacArthur. And I have to say it because it's so powerful. He says, what really Paul is saying is this. Make sure, Timothy... Your life speaks so loudly that no one can hear what you say. Make sure that your, the way you conduct yourself speaks so loudly that no one can hear what you say. And so five areas were given to Timothy, and five areas are given to me, five areas are given to you, and five areas especially to those of you who what I consider the young people within our society. So this is a message really strongly for you who are in your teenage years, late teens, and in your 20s right now. So the first area is that of speech, the area of speech. Now, I don't think when he says in the area of speech, this is in regards to the teaching and preaching ministry of Timothy. That would be redundant considering verse 11. He says, prescribe and teach these things. And then again in verse 13, until I come give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So he's, he's talking about speech in a different category than the preaching and teaching ministry. I think what he was saying is, be careful the way you talk in general conversations amongst the church community and the way you interact with people within the church. Remember the false teachers in terms of their description of speech. In chapter 1, they're entering into fruitless discussion that leads to speculation and doesn't lead to a path of godliness. In chapter 6, they're getting into arguments and quarrels and they're causing division and jealousy amongst the church community. Timothy is obviously to refrain from all the type of language the false teachers are engaged in. But there's a key text, I think, in Ephesians 4 that helps us with the kind of speech he wanted Timothy to participate in. And why I like this is, remember, 1 Timothy is written to the church in Ephesus. This letter to the Ephesians, of course, is written to the church in Ephesus. And this letter was earlier on before 1 Timothy was written. But look at the command in chapter 4, verse 29, in terms of speech. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that is, that it may benefit those who listen. You notice the two words there? Speech that builds and benefits. Builds and benefits. This is language that does not tear down or becomes a de detriment. This is language that would be free from gossip, uh, free from slander, free from lying, free that would be quick in, to anger, uh, quick to retaliate, uh, language that is offensive to others. We think of areas such as profanity. And I did a sermon on the houseboat um, 
last year specifically just on profanity. So if you ever want to listen to that, you can go ahead. But I love this. I call it the BBs. The BBs, right? Um, the, the, those that build and benefit. That's the kind of speech that's to be used. Now, why would this matter? Well, the words we say are very powerful. The language we choose to use is very powerful. Like we have a saying in our culture that says, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is total garbage. That is total garbage. And all my counseling with people and story after story after story, I, I'm told of words and phrases and things that have been said to people, as, especially as children, that cut deeply and deeply wounded them and has shaped their life as an adult in terms of how they think. You see, Proverbs is right when it says this in chapter 12, verse 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. They cut, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So words that aren't gracious are not sweet to the soul and they're not healing to the bones. They, do, they bring disease and decay. So again, our words matter. Our words have the power to bless or the power to curse. It's why the book of James refers to our tongues being like the rudder on a ship. A rudder on a ship, it's really small in comparison to the size of the ship. But man, does it have power to determine the course of its direction and its influence. Our tongue is also described in, in James as being like a, a bit in a horse's mouth. Again, you think of the, the power and the strength of a horse, and it just takes a little bit in its mouth when you pull on the rein to control the direction of that horse. The point is, the tongue is small, but it has the, the uh, ability to yield great power and influence. And so we're to use speech, and Timothy is to use speech that is filled with BBs, ones that is builds and benefits. And I think of my children right now who love BB guns, and they take all these pellets and they, they fill them up, uh, with, fill up the cartridge so they can shoot these BB guns. And um, I'm just reminded of uh, our, when we load ourselves, when we load our guns, it's to be filled with language that has BBs in it. Ones that build and benefit and do not tear down. If you're younger and you want to earn the respect of people within the church community, and especially someone like myself in pastoral ministry, Speak in ways and use words and enter into conversations that builds and benefits the body of believers. Don't tell lies. Don't enter into silly and foolish talk. Be true to your word. Fulfill your promises. How about conduct? Conduct refers to one's way of life. It's really behavior that's observable to others. It's a reference to one's actions. And I don't have to tell you how important this would be in terms of earning respect and trust within a church context. It's interesting, right, when presidential elections happen or provincial elections happen, uh, it's interesting one of the main tactics that uh, candidates try to use to win elections is to, is to try to find dirt on another person. That's one of the greatest tricks is to find dirt so that you can defame the other person and prove that they're not fit to run or hold office. And that's also why when dirt is found on a person, uh, that person goes to great lengths to try to minimize or justify the things they did in order to prove that they're still fit to be one's leader. 
And so Paul is really saying to Timothy, and he's saying to us, live your life in a way that is observable to others, that leaves no room for question, that dirt can't be brought up and dug up. In other words, be a model for others to emulate. And think of the elders list. Remember the elders list? All the categories, that, all of the qualifications there were um, not spiritual gifts with the exception of teaching. They're all character. They're all conduct ways, right? If, you're, if you happen to be married and you're 26, uh, emulate the way you conduct yourself within your marriage. If you have children and you're 27 or something or 21, whatever, emulate the way you raise your children. The way you do your finances, you know, seek to be generous, seek to live within the reality of your means. Uh, the way you handle conflict, be known for someone who seeks to resolve conflict instead of always being in the midst of it, and so on, and the list goes on. But again, the way we live is a way we deal with offsetting our age. Offsetting our age to earning respect. How about the area of love? The area of love. This love we're talking about here, of course, is not based on warm fuzzies, but that which is self-sacrificial and seeks to benefit others. Love in the scriptures is always seen as that which is self-sacrificial and seeks to benefit others. This is someone who seeks to put someone else's interests above their own with no expectation of return. It's not a life marked by getting, but a life by giving. It's a life marked with service. As I was thinking about what passage to use, the Spirit reminded me of an incredible scene in John 13 and verse 12. I want to read this to you. Jesus, of course, is at the Passover. He's only, it's the night before his crucifixion, and he, and he does this remarkable scene and this remarkable act amongst the 12 disciples. It says, When he had washed their feet, and taken his garments and reclined on the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Now that's an important phrase, church. Here's Jesus, who has walked into a room, all of their feet are dirty from their travels, and he gets down on his knees with a bowl and a towel and water, and washes all the disciples' feet. An action they should have been doing to him, if anything. And so he says, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. Now watch this. For I, did, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Do you know what I have done to you, Jesus says? I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. If you truly are going to love self-sacrificially, you're going to be one who's known for service. Known as one who serves. Now this will require a major attitude shift in many of us. Because if we're honest, we all create a pecking order within our own church family in terms of where we fit. We come up with a criteria, often, of why we're superior to others. We often can do that, and we kind of create a, a pecking order in our own head. If Christ did that with us, none of us could stand in the presence of God. Because in terms of superiority, He trumps us all, and yet He was still willing to serve us. So it's going to require a major attitude shift in us in order to take the role of service regardless of who the person is. 
And this is the shift we're going to have to take in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We have to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And often uh, the temptation that the, the devil sets before us is to not do this. We like to create uh, a spiritual pecking order even within the house of God. So how do we love? How do we self-sacrifice and be self-sacrificial and seek to benefit others? Well, we have to not wait to be asked, but look for opportunity to meet the other needs of people. You know, when I wrote my notes this week, it was interesting. The first thing I wrote on my list as an example uh, would be, be, be known as the person who always shows up to a person who has to be moved their house. So when we, a lot of us have moved in the last few years, be that person who's always there with bells on to be the first to be there to help them move. Regard them as more important yourselves. Give of your time. What was interesting is I wrote my sermon and had that point down and at this funeral yesterday with Evie's dad, his, his best friend stood up, gave a eulogy, and he mentioned, the first thing he mentioned is, Bill was always the first person there to always help you move your house. And he talked about the attitude he had in the joy of doing so. And again, the whole message of, of Bill's eulogy yesterday was that he, was the, he had a servant's heart. The entire, all of the examples were how he served, how he served, how he served. There's an incredible an example. Be the first person to lend tools out. Be the pers first person to, to take that person to the airport when they need a ride uh, and they don't want to park their car at the, at the airport. Um, be that person to free someone up and take their children so they can go do an important task. Uh, be the first person to make a hurting a phone call to that hurting person. Um, when you're at the RPAC and you see someone sweeping around your feet with a broom, don't make a snide remark about how good they're doing a job. Offer to take the broom from them and do it yourself. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. But one key area at church is how we engage in personal conversations. Seek to be another's promoter as opposed to a self-promoter. What do I mean by that? Often when we get together in conversations, it's, uh, we look to uh, use it as an opportunity to expand our personal resume. We can't wait to tell people what we're up to, what we've done, what we've accomplished, and so on and so forth. Truly loving someone is to actually get into their life, to ask them the, how they're doing, and to seek to hear about their experiences and to share in their successes. Again, in conversation, especially for those of us in ministry, and especially for those of us who are young, the tendency is to talk about what's happening in our lives. But we want to be not a self-promoter, but the promoter of another. How about faith? Well, this can refer to one's beliefs, like a saving faith in Christ, or it can refer to faithfulness. Faithfulness. I would suggest that what Paul's talking about encompasses both. Timothy was to be a model of unswerving faithfulness to the one he put his faith in. In other words, his relationship with God was to be the hit of utmost priority. It was to be the heartbeat of his life. Now, this is going to be a necessary quality in someone like Timothy, 
who was in the midst of a church where people who were once followers of Christ had abandoned their faith and ditched God completely. Remember, remember that's what we learned in chapter 4, verse 1. Some have fallen away from their faith. Man, to be faithful and devoted to, God, to Christ in, these, in the midst of this church would have been really important to stick to, to, to being devoted to him fully no matter what was thrown at him. You know, there are many temptations and trials, as you know, that will come our way that will test us and require to demonstrate, require to test us in demonstrating that we are solely allegiant to Christ. And no matter what's thrown at us, that our faith will remain rock solid in the Lord. As I was studying even this morning, just in preparation for today, I was reminded of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. There's a beautiful picture of faith and one's devotion. Interestingly, Paul and Timothy are both involved in that church as well. But in First Thess- in Thessalonians, uh, the Thessalonica, I should say, the church, of course, is planted there by Paul. Um, Paul has been, has been removed from them because he's off somewhere else planting another church, but he hears persecution and trials have hit the church in Thessalonica. And he's a fearful. He's so fearful that they've walked away from the faith and and, sh- and, and fallen back in their commitments to Christ because of the persecution. And so he sends Timothy in chapter 3 to go find out how they're doing. And Timothy comes back with a report that makes Paul ecstatic. He finds out that the Thessalonians have not swerved in their devotion to the Lord. They've remained faithful. And when Paul finds this out, that even in the midst of those trials of persecution, they, didn't, they were still faithful and devoted to the Lord, he makes this comment in, in chapter 3. He says, We were comforted because of your faith. We were comforted because of your faith. And then he says one more time, We have so much joy before our God because of you. We cannot thank him enough for all the joy we feel. Again, because they were faithful. They were faithful. They, no matter what the trial, no matter what the situation, no matter how tough things got, they did not swerve in their allegiance to Jesus Christ. He was the rock of their lives. How about purity? Purity. The Greek word for purity actually encompasses the meaning chaste. or ch- Yeah, chaste. And so um, often this is used in the reference to sexual purity. Now, while I'm sure Paul has this in mind as part of the uh, description of what he's talking about, I don't think this is really the definition Paul primarily has in mind here. Again, we're not saying a sexual purity is of no importance. Of course it was. Of course it was. We, know, we all know many pastors, for example, and youth who have fallen into sexual sin and, and the tragedy this can result in. But I think what he's talking about here is, is, a, is a different kind of purity, there's a variation of that word used only one other place in the New Testament. And that's in the same book in 1 Timothy 5.22. And he says this, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. That word free is the word pure. The same Greek word in terms of its um, variation. Now when you look up the word in that context, it means to be blameless or innocent. So keep yourself free from sin. Again, the context here is then the purity of sin, being blameless in regards to sin, being innocent in sin. So this is someone in which sin is by and large absent from the present of that person's life. To be pure, that to be pure is that sin is by and large absent from that person's life. 
They're known for being someone who consistently walks in obedience to the Lord. And as we said last week, um, as one of my one-liners in my sermon, godliness is often the best advertisement for Christianity. Godliness is often the best advertisement for Christianity. And so this is super important. I do want to end with one thing, though, church. I realize that the primary message here is spoken to those who are uh, maybe in ministry, or but especially those who are uh, youth, youth uh, considered young in that cultural context. But Paul is, um, when you read between the lines, Paul is also addressing older people. Because he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. That means that the temptation of older people, people who are not in that age bracket, have a tendency to look down upon those who are in a different age bracket than us. And that's, that's important. We talk about this because it's a common assumption within society and in the Bible that older people, because they have more wisdom and experience, will have the tendency as a result to, na- to naturally put themselves in the position of a, a superiority and therefore look down upon people who are younger. I mean, it, again, many times uh, those who are older do have wisdom and more experience and do have the right to teach others. That's why in Scripture, like I said, the Bible does support this, that wisdom and age, experience do come with age. In Titus 2.3, he says, older women are to teach younger women how to love their husbands and how to like, uh, you know, be workers at home and so on. So again, older to teach younger because it's assumed that there is more experience and more wisdom to pass down. But sometimes people who are older do look down upon those who are younger. And they, and they do so for a couple different reasons. First of all, because they have more wisdom and more age, they think you're to learn from me. I'm your superior. You are to keep your mouth basically quiet and learn from me because I know how life works and you don't. Other issues are things like we always believe, no matter what generation that we believe lived in, that we our generation was right. <laughs> you often talk to older people and they'll tell you about what it was like in their childhood and what it was like in their days. And they talk about it in a way that their way was right. And their way was the better way to do things. And these young people these days just don't get it. Now, there are some cases that may be true, but not in all cases. But, we, but again, when you come from a certain generation of mold, you believe that your way is the right way. So again, uh, this is important that we have to be careful that we don't look down upon people because the young people will sense and know when we do so. Often we use sarcasm as a way of putting people in their place or we can use derogatory statements. But remember today's message, we're to use language that builds and benefits. If we want to influence the younger people, the people that are looked down upon, we do it by modeling those characteristics ourselves and by giving them building and benefiting type of language. We come alongside them and help them into maturity. We don't make derogatory statements. You know, I was talking to someone that I, that I, I admire a lot in terms of his parenting uh, abilities. And he said this to me. He said, Andrew, you know, um, I watch it all the time with, uh, with parents and especially those in the, the late, like later teen years and uh, even parents uh, that come to church with their kids that are in their 20s. He said, uh, I watch all the time where we're standing in a circle and the young man or woman will make a comment and the parents will come right behind them and correct them right away in front of everybody or make some kind of sarcastic comment and put them in their place. 
And he says, those young adults come to me after and say, you know what? I hate it when my parents do that. I hate it. Because why? Because publicly, the parents are basically saying right in front of the other adults, my children don't know what they're talking about. And, 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 and I do as their superior. Again, these are some of the comments from young adults uh, from one of my friends that he's experienced. And so we have to be careful the kind of language we use um, in order to build and benefit the younger people. So again, I realize that the passage today is more or less speaking to, to the younger generation, but I think it was worth just talking about the older generation as well. So scripture's clear. How do we offset these, this idea of being uh, disadvantaged because of our age? We live in a way that our conduct reflects that we're trustworthy and are worthy of respect. That's what we've learned today. We use language as encouraging, that seeks to edify, and come alongside people to help build them up.